0: One of the things all of us long for, all, one of the things, all the things that we have a hope for is we're hoping for good leadership. This is why this week we've seen so much response to the elections. The people who, who, who voted for David Cameron, they're like, yes, now things are going to happen. The people that didn't vote for David Cameron are like, oh no, everything's ruined. Why? Because we have this expectation of good leadership. We long for someone who can bring in justice. We long for someone who can basically bring in equity. We long for someone who knows how to, who knows how to lead with strength and mercy. And we want that person so badly. And we forget that person's already come. His name is Jesus. You see, the, the children of Israel are wanting that. Imagine, too, when Joseph is sharing this with his sons. Where are they? They're in Egypt. They're not in the promised land. They've had to go to Egypt because there's been famine. And yes, God gave supernatural provision through through prophetic wisdom to Joseph so that they could survive the famine. They themselves even thrived during the famine, but still they're not in the promised land. They're not in paradise yet, you might say. They're not in that place that God's promised yet. And he's saying to them, "Listen, even though some of you guys are disqualified from leading. God's going to raise up someone from Judah whom you'll praise, just like his name means, praise. You're going to praise this guy because this guy is going to be the one, listen, this is going to be the one who's going to be the final and permanent ruler. He's going to be one who prevails like a lion. He's going to be one who provides that place in paradise for us. This is the hope we have. This is why I said, and I didn't mean to be glib, but this is why I said I'm going to vote for Jesus. I've already voted for Jesus. There's already a mighty good ruler on the way. There's already a good leader that we have expectation in. And we're not just talking about something that's going to happen in the future, he's going to lead in the future. He calls us to follow him now and demonstrate how good it is to be under his rulership, his leadership. He's a mighty good leader. So hope for the future is always tied up into the hope of a good leader. And I have to say, if you're sick of being disappointed by politicians, don't give up. Do, do, give due diligence, study, vote. It's a good thing. I'm, I'm really quite impressed with the British people. 66% of registered voters turn out the vote. That's impressive to me. Americans, we're too lazy. We don't get, well, it's not going to work. No one goes out there to vote. That's, that's really good. Well done. Continue to do that, but don't think your hope is ever going to be in anybody who gets elected to office. The only hope that this world has is Jesus coming back. He's the hope of a good leader. Now, go down to verse 29 of chapter 49. It says, Then Jacob charged them, and he said to them, I am... "...to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which, notice, Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. There I buried Leah." And the field and the cave is there were, were purchased from the sons of Heth. Now, interesting, even though Rachel was Jacob's beloved wife, she's buried near Bethlehem. But does he want to be buried near his beloved wife? No, he wants to be buried in that place of promise. He wants to be buried with Leah, which is interesting. But also, it's important to recognize this, he wants to be buried in the place that's already been purchased. This burial ground, this this place where he wants to be buried in Canaan, not in Egypt, is a place that's already been purchased for him. Now, notice it says that that Jacob says, I am to be gathered to my people. Now, that's a euphemism in the Old Testament, and it it refers to it that these guys had a sense of the afterlife. They had a sense that to, to be absent from the body would be present with the Lord, just like the New Testament says. They had that mindset. And so he's not just thinking, look, Okay, my body is just going to be there forever. He's thinking, you know what? I'm going to go be with my fathers, but that's the land of promise. That's where I want to be. That's what what God's provided for me. It's what's been purchased on my behalf, you might say. Doesn't that kind of remind you of something? The fact that Jesus has purchased on our behalf a place. What does Jesus say in John chapter 14? He says, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I wouldn't tell you. How did He prepare that place? He went and He died on a cross. He rose from the dead preparing a place that we are in Christ. That's why the Bible says in the book of Colossians, our lives are hid with God in Christ. That's why the Bible says in the book of Ephesians that we're seated with God, in, seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We're in Christ. We have a place, a place we don't deserve, a place that's been purchased for us. Jacob is saying he, he desires this. And after he gives this command, remember we we saw last week or two weeks ago, I can't remember, but we saw that he basically gave this command already to Joseph. So he's kind of spelling it out to all the brothers. And this is exactly what he wants. We see in verse thirty-three. It says, "When Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, and he breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people." Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, uh, the physicians to embalm his father so that the physicians embalmed Israel. Interesting side note, he didn't command the embalmers who would usually be the priests who would be involved in religious rites. He gets the physicians to do it, which shows he's just using the medical method, not the religious method. But it says, 40 days were required for him for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days, which is, by the way, just two days then Egyptian law would say you would have to mourn for Pharaoh, just two days less, 70 days for Jacob. It would be 72 days for Pharaoh, so they're really honoring him. Verse 4, now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, my father made me swear, saying, behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will go back. And Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. Now, remember what God had promised Jacob back in Genesis 46 when Jacob's sons come back from Egypt and say, Joseph's alive and he's the ruler, we need to go to him. And so, you know, Joseph, or Jacob takes some convincing, but he's convinced they start going back, He stops to worship, and you can tell he's thinking, "God, is this really what your plan is?" And God speaks to Jacob, if you remember, this is Genesis 46:4. He speaks to, to Jacob, and he, or, yeah, he speaks to Jacob, and he says, "Listen, I'm going to be with you when you go down, and I'm going to bring you back again. And Joseph will lay his hands on your eyes. In other words, when you die, you're not going to just see his face, but when you die, he's going to be the one that actually closes your eyes for you. He's going to be right there. That's exactly what's happening right now. So just as God had promised Jacob, his death and burial are happening. Now, verse 7. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him he went uh, went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there uh, went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was very, a very great gathering. Then, there came, then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. And he observed seven days of mourning for his father, and when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing hol- floor of Atad, they said, "'This is the deep mourning of the Egyptians.'" Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the, the Jordan, which that name basically means "morning of the Egyptians. So his sons did for him just as he commanded them, for his sons carried him in the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, which before memory, and Abram brought with the field of, uh, the Abram bought, excuse me, from the, uh, Ephron the Hittite as property for burial place. And after he had buried uh, his father Joseph returned to Egypt. He and his brothers and all who went with him. Now, what's interesting about this is that there's a picture of what's going to happen in four centuries past. This there's a picture of the leader of Israel, uh, one who, who whom Pharaoh would have known, is going to go into Pharaoh and he's going to say, "Let me and my people go." It's interesting because it's also the only place that chariots and horsemen are mentioned in the five books of Moses, the only two places, is right here in verse 9 and in Exodus 14 and 15 when the chariots chase after the Israelites and get destroyed in the sea. Interesting that the place that they they go to stop and mourn, it ends up being called the, the mourning of the Egyptians, you know, the, the, the pouring out in mourning or or sadness of the Egyptians. And what happens to the Egyptians, of course, at the Exodus? There, a bunch of them are destroyed. So essentially, this could, this could be a prophetic picture of that. But there's something else here, and I want you to go to the end of Genesis 50, the verse 22, because here we have, Jacob did not want to be buried in uh, Egypt. He wanted to make sure he was buried in Canaan. So what happens when Joseph gets to his deathbed? Look at verse 22. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. So it's kind of summing up Joseph's life. He lives to be 110 years old. He gets to see not just his children, but his great-grandchildren, at least from, from Ephraim's side. And, and if, you, if you do the math, basically Joseph has lived in Egypt more than 90% of his life. He's lived in Egypt. And he's had a pretty good life, except for the first part of prison, which wasn't so great. Once God began to use him after a few years, he's had a pretty good life. He was second in command of all Egypt. He's, 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 he's given, a, I'm sure, a beautiful wife. They had two lovely kids. He was reconciled with his father, reconciled with his brothers. He got to see them all come. He was used of God to save an entire nation, actually two nations, the Israelites and the Canaanites, three nations and the Israelites. He he got used in a pretty radical way. He had a good life. Look what what he asked for. Verse 24, and Joseph said to his brethren, I'm dying. Notice he says, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Do you understand what he's asking for? He's saying, listen, I can't make a deal with Pharaoh, I'm dying, but here's the deal I'm making with you because I am sure... God's going to visit you. I'm sure he's going to show up and fulfill his promise and give you that land and when you go, take me with you. I want you to think about this for a second because, listen, Joseph lived 90% of his life in Egypt, a good life, and guess what? It wasn't his home. It wasn't his home. He knew his home was the land of promise that God had for him. That was his home. I've mentioned this before, but it just... It makes sense. It feels, it feels like a just the best kind of analogy I can make up. Having now lived in Great Britain for uh, almost twelve years, when we go back to the United States, it doesn't feel like home anymore. It just doesn't. I mean, it's nice, you know, all the nice drive-through fast food. It's really good for you. everyone working too many hours, that's all lovely, but you know, I go back there and it just doesn't feel like home. But I'll be honest, I'm here and it doesn't quite feel like home. I'll start to feel at home and then I'll recognize I talk funny. (laughs) It doesn't always feel like home here. And I've noticed with my children who have grown up here, that they definitely fit into what sociologists called third culture as third culture kids. They don't belong to the culture of their parents. They don't belong to their host culture, They're third culture kids. And you know what's interesting? As I was thinking about this this week and thinking about this reality of of here's Joseph spending 90% of his life in Egypt, but that wasn't his home. But not able to go back to where he knew one day God would have from. That wasn't his home. And he was in that kind of third culture position. That's who we are. We're like third-culture kids, we who follow Jesus. We know, okay, we like this place. This is a comfortable place. We can have a good life here. The Bible doesn't say we can't have a good life here. It just, this isn't home. This isn't home. We're not in heaven yet, but this definitely isn't heaven either, and we're longing for that home. Now, this is what's so great about what Jesus talks about about the fact that he has gone to prepare a place for us because here's the reality. Our hope for the future, yes, it's the hope of a good leader. Jesus is Lord. He's gonna, all the nations of the earth will bow down to him. We follow him. But also, listen, the hope of a permanent home. I I can say this, and maybe this is just only my experience. Maybe this is not a universal experience, but I lived in a house in Sproulston for six years. Nice house. We really liked living there. I lived in a house in California for four years that I still miss. Not because that house was nicer, but you know what? It was a house that I owned, or at least I paid a mortgage on. It was my house. And it was this weird experience of, this is my house. I can do whatever I want to the yard, I can do nothing to the garden if I want. This is my house. I can decorate without permission. This is my house. This just, I belong here. And when we left it, it was surprisingly difficult. It was hard to sell that house. I, I, I can't explain it. And I've got, I got to be honest with you, there's sometimes when I still pine to own a home again, even though it's not that big of a deal. It's not even necessarily a better idea financially. But I sometimes long for that. And there's something in us, I think, that longs for a sense of permanence, a sense of belonging. This is mine. This is where I'm supposed to be, right here. And guess what? That sense is fulfilled in heaven. It's fulfilled in the place that God's prepared for us. This is our hope for the future. See, some people think, oh, that's just pie in the sky, by and by. That's, you know, that's not really worth anything. that's, That's just kind of, you know, a pipe dream. You know, that's every person's desire is to feel like this, to know, to know they belong that they're in the place they're meant to be. See, here here Joseph, here Jacob on his deathbed says, I want to be buried where I'm meant to be. That's my home. Here's Joseph on his deathbed. Look, I can't be buried there yet, but when you guys leave, because God's surely going to bring you into the promised land, when you guys leave, you take me with you because that's where I want to be. That's my home. Guys, it's not an accident that there's this picture of longing for home, but before home comes death. Death and resurrection. In fact, many theologians believe that's what Jacob was expecting. He was expecting to be resurrected. So he said, okay, I want to be buried there. I want to be resurrected there because their mindset might have been God's going to create, when God comes, uh, when, when the Lord comes back and sets up his kingdom on earth, that's the place I want to be. This is the part where we're supposed to be want to be resurrected there. But that's our home. Now, I want you to think about this. The next time you spend an entire weekend doing DIY, DIY, whatever it's called. (laughs) I don't do much of it. The next time you repaint your house or you you, you think, okay, I'm going to make it just right, Nothing wrong with doing that, but don't think that's all there is. Don't, you know, Christian, don't think that. Don't think that's your hope. God's hope for you is bigger than just the home, the four walls and a roof you're going to live in. It's way bigger than that. He has a dwelling place prepared for us. It's much more glorious. So, there's a the hope of a good leader. There's a hope of a permanent home, but let's look at verse 15. Because the hope that we need right now is the hope of real forgiveness. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. Now, we know from previous chapters that Joseph had already said, hey, I, I forgive you. He, he had said, listen, don't be afraid, I forgive you. It's, it's like wandering on the bridge, it's okay. Let's go get dad. He embraced them. He loved on them. They ate together. They've been together now for 17 years, living together. But when dad dies, they, feel, they still think, oh no, now what's going to happen? Now, the, the reason they're fearing their brother's vengeance is because they recognize how bad their sin's been. They, they get a sense of how that is, and probably also they recognize how much power Joseph has. You can pretty much do what you want if you've saved three nations. If you save three nations, you know Pharaoh's going to go, hey, if you want to wipe them out, wipe them out, that's fine with me. And so they're, they're fearing the power that he has. They understand the sin they've done against him, and they're thinking, oh, no, what's going to happen? And, and, and to be clear, that's not necessarily bad of them. <laughs> Uh, there, there's, a, there's a sense where, you know, they have really sinned against Joseph. They sold him into slavery. They, made their, they, they, they allowed their father to think he was dead for years. I mean, you can understand why they would thought the vengeance is coming. And so here's what they do. Verse 16. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father had died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now, we don't know for sure that Jacob didn't say this, but to be honest, I suspect he didn't. You know why? Because I think Jacob would have said this directly to Joseph, hey, go easy on your brothers. Forgive them. So what this seems to be a picture of is here's the brothers, okay? They're they're, they're afraid of the vengeance of Joseph, and so they're thinking, okay, how can we scheme to get him to forgive us? How can we work a deal? I know. Let's use dead dad as a mediator. You know, dad, your dad, daddy, he wanted you to forgive us. Daddy said, forgive us. Daddy said, please forgive them. You know, the one that just died, that daddy. <laughs> A bit of emotional manipulation possibly going on. And so they say this, and, and then they say this, they themselves say, Now please, this is verse 17, Now please forgive the trespasses of the servants of the God of your father. And it says, And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now, they're begging forgiveness, and this is provoking Joseph to tears, and we don't know for sure why. It could be he's provoked to tears because he's touched. Finally, they're actually really broken. It could be that. But, I mean, we're talking 16 years he's been with these guys. Was there indications maybe that they weren't really, you know, they hadn't really uh, uh, wanted to reconcile with him? I mean, what was there? But really what I think, the reason Joseph is weeping is because here they are begging for forgiveness. Here they are kind of trying to use a little bit of emotional manipulation possibly to to make sure they, they are forgiven. And Joseph, I believe, is weeping because he's going, guys, come on. It's been 16 years and you still don't believe? You still don't believe that I've forgiven you. They even in verse 18 present themselves as slaves. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, uh, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. So first they send a messenger to say the other bits that we see in verses 17. But in verse 18, they themselves go and they fall down before him, say, Look, we're your servants. We're your servants. They present themselves as slaves. And again, you get the sense that this is all about a scheme. Okay, can we emotionally manipulate Joseph into forgiving us? Or maybe what we can do is we can just just kind of beg. We beg hard enough, he'll forgive us. Or no, if that doesn't work, we'll say, okay, fine, we'll just be your servants. Just please, just please. Well, We'll do whatever you say. Just please don't kill us. And there's a lesson here for us, guys, because it's important for us to recognize, listen, that the fear of judgment alone never leads to real relationship. It is right for us as humans to recognize there's a God we're accountable to. It's good for us to recognize we have sinned against Him, and He should pour out His vengeance on us. It is good to recognize that. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But it's not all of it. And sometimes what happens with us, we're so stuck on, we should get squished, we should get judged, we should be, we're so focused on the vengeance of God. Even if we rightly understand we deserve it, and we rightly understand He gives it justly, we're so focused on that, that I believe Jesus weeps. And He says, isn't what I I did enough? How, How long have you been hearing the gospel and you still don't believe? Listen to what the Scripture says. The Bible says in 1 John 4, it says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day, of, the day of judgment. Because as He is, so are we in this world. In other words, as He is at the right hand of the Father, so are we positionally, even as we're in this world. There is no fear in love. This is why. Because perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. He's not talking about fearing God. He's talking about fearing judgment. We should fear God. He's holy. He's right. What he says goes. We are going to be rewarded by what we do. We should fear God. Don't get me wrong. But we should never, as Jesus followers, as those who've been born of God's Spirit, we are not to fear judgment, as in vengeance. And when we do that, listen, do you know what it's saying? The Bible's saying here in 1 John, it's saying we're immature. And we need to grow up. I have to say, I've been really convicted about this. I've been a Christian for 20-something years, and I still wonder, oh, maybe I'm not saved. Here it comes. Why? Is Is what Jesus did not enough? When he said, it is finished. What does that mean? It is finished. It's finished. The Bible says, listen, the Bible says of us who are in Christ, we are not appointed to wrath. So let's grow into that. Let's, let's say, Lord, you, you have a perfect love for me. I, I have never deserved it. I never will deserve it. It's all of your grace. It's all of you. It's all a free gift in Christ. You've put me there. So they do all this scheming that says in verse 19, And Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I, am I in the place of God? But listen to what he says, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring, about, uh, bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. I love this. Here, here they are, the brothers are they're afraid of Joseph's vengeance and so then he kind of schemed to see if they can kind of corner him into forgiveness, but here's what he does. He didn't say, hey, stop manipulating me. He just says, guys, don't be afraid, and he assures them of his forgiveness. And I love the way he says this too, because in doing so, he emphasizes, notice, both their responsibility and God's sovereignty. He doesn't say, oh, it's okay, guys. I know, it's just misunderstanding. He says, you actually meant this for evil. I'm not hiding that fact. I know you meant this for evil. But I, this is not about you. This is about God. And God meant it for good to save many people, not just the the Egyptians, not just the Canaanites, to save you. You wanted evil against me, and God used that evil against me to save you. This is exactly what the Bible says about the gospel, about Jesus. Listen to this. We read this a couple weeks ago in our study in Acts, didn't we? On Sunday nights. In Acts chapter 2. It says him, speaking of Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, God's plan. You have taken by lawless hands evil evil desires and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Do you see the intermixing of man's responsibility, his choices, and God's sovereignty perfectly blended together? Do you see that? I wonder how many of us have a, a testimony of running from God or thumbing our nose at God or trying to decide why we shouldn't believe in God and God using that to get our attention and bring, him back, bring us back to himself. I love when I hear those stories about people who wanted to convince themselves or wanted to prove the Bible wasn't true, wanted to prove Jesus wasn't alive. And what ends up happening? God saves them through the process. I'll fight. I'll take you on, God. I don't don't need you. What happens? God says, yeah, but I'm going to save you anyway. This is what God does. You, You could have come here today thinking, this is my last time at church. I'm sick of this nonsense. I don't care. And God's going, yeah, but I want you. Joseph says, man, don't be afraid. You meant it for evil, but... God meant it for good to save many. And then he says, verse 21, Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Don't be afraid, I will provide. Again, 1 John chapter 4, listen to this. This is from the New Living Translation. This is a paraphrase, but this is I like the way it says it. 1 John 4.10 says, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And here's his provision, listen. Sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. The hope that we have as Jesus followers is the hope of real forgiveness. Not, oh, if I do good enough, maybe I'll do enough good deeds that will erase my bad deeds, that kind of forgiveness. No, that's religion. That's not Scripture. Not, well, I, you know, I, I think that's going to happen, so I'm going to hedge my bets that, that if, I, if I do the Jesus thing, that when I die, you know, I'll go to heaven. He'll forgive me then. No. Right now. Right now you can experience real forgiveness against the one that you've sinned against. See, it doesn't matter if your sin's been against uh, another person. Almost always we sin against another person, but even when we sin against another person, it is always against God. David the psalmist said, against you only have I sinned, and that was evil in your sight." See, it's it's God to whom we've done evil. It's God whom we've ignored. It's God to whom we have not been thankful. It's God who's given us all good things to enjoy that we go, ah, I earned this. It's to God that we complain when suffering happens, though we corporately are the cause of suffering. And it's God who says, yes, but I sent Christ to die for you that you could be forgiven And you can know that now. I'm going to ask the music team to come back up. And as the music team comes back up, I want you to think about what Genesis means. The word Genesis means beginning. It means beginning. Today can be a new beginning for you. Today. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have all passed away. Behold, all things have become New. You can start fresh. Remember, this is not just a hope for the future. This is not just Jesus is a great leader and he's coming back soon. It is that, but it's more than that. It's not just he's coming back to establish his kingdom so we'll finally be in that permanent home with him. He'll be that final ruler. It is that, but it's more than that. It's that you can know right now how good he is By his willingness to forgive you. The Bible says, listen, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what it says. How can he do that? How can he be faithful? How can he do that every time? We sin against God so much every day. We do the same sins, sins we know we shouldn't do anymore. We still do them. How can he do it every time? How can he be faithful? And how can he be just? How can a good judge just kind of say, I wipe it clean? Because Christ died for our sins. He paid the price. That's how.